Hi, Sarah Heppler. Hi, Nancy Rommelman. Uh, the you background enjoying? behind you has changed. Did you get a new screensaver? You know, I just decided to buy a, a different kind of different thing since I've talked to you last three days ago. So now I'm in my, you know, 30 room mansion in San Francisco. And um, Which it's penthouse nice. is this? Yeah, I got to say it's pretty nice. Um, I actually just for the heck of it. Hi, everyone. Yes, I'm in San Francisco staying um, very, very kindly um, with a with a friend of a friend. And um, I decided just for the heck of it to try to get a, a sense of how big this place was. By the way, I think I'm the only person here. Like, there's no one spooky. else here. I know. Um, so I walked with my uh, not very accurate feet, like steps from the front of the house to the back, and it's 90 feet. That's just, that's pretty big. Anyway, it's really, really super nice. I'm looking out. Um, I'm right near, I guess, the painted ladies' houses, and um, it's just, it's nice. It's, I, I have to say, if you're, when you go on a story and someone gives you this, this beautiful a place to write the story from, then you know you better do a good job. When I was in Fairfax, Virginia, reporting on Depp Heard, I was staying in an extended stay America. <laughs> it's really like, no, it's not at all. <laughs> it's um, like really the opposite of the digs <laughs> that you're currently in. <laughs> it's pretty nice. One of us got the deal. Here. I did. One of us got the deal. It's like on Priceline, like you, you had to go, or maybe like one of those game shows, like, is oh, it yeah. behind door like number one? The, yeah, I got the chicken <laughs> that was behind the, and you got the like, beautiful uh, right. blue Cadillac. When yours opened the door, they went, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Sarah. So I can, you know, uh, for, first of all, what's the name of this show? Smoke them if you got them. Yes, it is. And um, so uh, for people, we said this before, we, we record on something called Zencaster. And um, so we can see each other. And I can also see myself in a small square. And I am looking a little, little bedraggled. But that's okay. Um, because I'm in San Francisco meeting super interesting people in uh, in service to this story. I'm writing about the Chesa Boudin recall, which it's uh, we're recording on Friday morning, and the recall is on Tuesday, and I've already been able to interview some really interesting people and have another one coming up in a couple hours. So um, so far, so good. Nancy, you're always beautiful to me. Oh, honey. And I want to say something funny about your hair, which is that um, your hair is always <laughs> cool, but you have this really hilarious like nest in the back where you clearly did not brush your hair this morning. And I so never it's my like, hair. looks like <laughs> you've just been laying, like it's got this like pillow thing that makes uh, me feel like we're having pillow talk right now. Yeah. Well, there's, I think there's two, there's two ways. There's the grown up way that the back of your hair sometimes looks like that, which we will not go into detail of, but yeah. also babies. When uh, babies nap and stuff, when they get up, they've got this giant, like weird bush. So yes, I, I have that going on. I can see that right now. Um, so one of the reasons I'm a little tired is because um, someone, my, some partner I have in Smoke Em, if you got him, said, Nancy, oh did you watch, did you watch both the new episodes of The Deep End? And I oh, hadn't. Holy shit. Um, so I watched um, episode two last night and half of episode three before I conked out. And I just uh, watched the second half because that's what you should do at 6.15 in the morning. You should be watching TV shows about um, uh, a cult leader in your mansion in San Francisco. Anyway, I'm just going to say straight up, she's a straight up. First of all, she's a Teal Swan is uh, if there's been, I'm sure there have been people as like pathologically narcissistic as she is. I'm sure there are because there's many We've had billions and billions of people in the world. I'm also going to say she's a straight-up sadist. Like, straight fucking 
up. Uh, and I and I understand filmmakers. Hey, filmmakers cut things to to present the narrative in a certain way. But there's no way you could have followed you or me around and cut something right to look like she does. Uh, I find her, you know, it's interesting. You said to me the other day, there's only four episodes of this and my only kind, you said there should be eight or 12 or whatever. Um, and I thought, well, I wonder if she called it off, if she stopped mm. the filming. Do we know anything about that? No, but she was watching the episodes as they aired. So she wasn't getting to see them in oh, well- you, you know, before, before. So, um, and they filmed for three years, I believe. And so I think it was their decision to do the four episode arc. And, you know, she did response videos for the first two episodes. Um, in the second episode, she calls this, you know, not journalism, but entertainment. She says, if you were watching this video and you thought we were nutcases, I would agree with you. Um, but I want to, uh, agree with you when you say that, you know, whether this is, you know, she, she does a lot of, of analysis of how they've, they've shaped reality here. For instance, they don't actually live on a compound together. Everybody's living in separate houses. This is her place in Utah. It's cut with footage from a place in Costa Rica that makes it seem like they're always there. There's, there's several slights of hand here. Fair enough. But um, the footage that I found most upsetting was not that stuff. That's all that's all window dressing. Um, You know, we you and I began this conversation a couple weeks ago with your saying she was one of the most dangerous people you'd ever seen. And me saying, you know, I, I withhold judgment. I'd like to learn more about this person. You know, I I just wanted to remain a little bit neutral for a while. I will say the third episode of this podcast of this show has pushed me very strongly into the anti camp. Um, yeah. This is a dangerous person. Oh, this yeah. is a person who is not well. Um, she is being wildly enabled, and I really began to question if there would be criminal charges against her after this documentary well, well, is shown. Well, apparently she's still out in the world and doing what she does. I have no idea because I'm I'm new to Teal Swan. I have no idea of the arc of her popularity. She's been around a while. I'm assuming she's still popular. I just want to go back to one thing you said in terms of sleight of hand. Well, first of all, I, I can't see... I, unless Teal Swan wants something from you, there's no way ever on God's green earth that she is going to compliment something that you've done. It will only be denigrating you in order to make herself look bulletproof in some way. So when you say the filmmakers had some sort of sleight of hand, like was it Costa Rica? Was it the, you know, Utah? I don't really think that they're trying so much to make it look like, I mean, they're just like, they're showing you these locations. And I like when there was like the wind flapping in this last episode, palm trees, I was like, well, they're clearly in someplace tropical. And then you see them in the desert. So it's, yeah, it's a different location. They don't have to say it. We don't have to state what's implied. Um, in terms of um, her being dangerous and whether there'll be criminal charges, um, I mean, I think there should be. And, and again, like the pleasure she's taking 
wow, I just had so many thoughts. You know, we, 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 any students of history, you know, you, you, you turn 10 years old and you learn what happened in, in the Holocaust or in East Germany or in Mao or any place. And you're like, how in the world do people go along with this monstrousness? And you saw it in that one scene where her acolytes are basically bringing a woman to the edge of drowning. That, what did she call it? Water therapy or something like this? Dude, I, mean, I don't know what that was. It was one of the spookiest things I'd ever seen. This is at the end of episode three. I was freaked out. It was late last night when I was watching it. I was alone. I am so not spooked as a general rule. I watched The Exorcist when I was 13. And I was like, cool, let's do it again. And that scene freaked my shit. Well, and you know what? The, the journalists, obviously, the people filming were there. They had a camera underwater. And I, you know, it's funny, there's something in journalism, which I'm, I'm sure our listeners are smart and they, they understand when you're reporting on a story, you can't, you can't influence a story. Like you, you have to observe the story and let people do things, let people do dumb things. There is a line, if I'm writing a story about a, a six-year-old and the six-year-old runs into the street and is going to get hit by a car, I'm just going to, I'm not just going to watch. I'm going to step in and, and change that. But you know, it's, you really have to make these weird, um, these word calls, and and I'll just digress further a little a little bit since I'm sitting here in San Francisco. Um, we've talked about Joan Didion a lot, and we talked about um, the the documentary that her uh, nephew Griffin Dunn made um, called "The Center Will Not Hold." Was that what it was called? Yes. Um, and there's the scene where she's she she's talking to her about um, um, her essay, you know, slouching towards Bethlehem, and when she's like in the sort of communal living space where these young people are living, and there's a there's a young child to whom they've given acid. Now, you know, this is absolutely horrific, and and Joan Diddy and I don't believe was there when it when they actually dosed the child, but when Griffin Dunn asks her like what did you think of this? And she looks at the camera and she, with her like Joan Didion hand that she someone, you know, sometimes puts out, she goes, well, it was, I mean, it was gold. Now, this, this moment, and actually still right now, again, is, is a bit disturbing to me. I understand it as a journalist. Like you walk into situations sometimes and these things are just like, holy mackerel, like I couldn't have even created this to work as incredibly for this story. I'm just conceiving now and walking into it and trying to understand and trying to highlight for the reader. And yet to sort of classify a four or six-year-old, I can't remember how old the child was, a little girl, I believe, on acid as journalistic gold, it's, it's somewhat it's somewhat disturbing, and I it's think it chilling. disturbs a lot of people. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning this because in relation to the people doing the Teal Swan show, The Deep End, being underwater and filming this woman uh, near drowning. Now, of course, they could have they could have kind of changed it and cut it. And right. Done- we don't know how it's been cut That's in, right. a, in, in an right. ominous way to make it seem far more perilous than it was in at the moment. The thing about what we're really seeing quite, quite clearly, and we, we know this at the beginning, but we know this about any cult or any, any one of these organizations, like they have to break you. They have to break you in order to get you to, you know, be, to, to give up yourself in service to the leader, right? We're seeing very, very, very clearly in this episode, um, 
teal swan breaking people, like literally breaking them, putting them in terrible positions of public humiliation. Donald Trump used to do this to people, to people within his own cabinet. He would like humiliate them publicly in order that like you're so caught off guard. You're like, what? She's doing that. And I have to say there are two heroes so far in this, in this, uh, increasingly are heroes in this and they are who would you say the two heroes are so far um, i would say yeah i would say it's juliana juliana the the woman that comes from germany yep um and then there is an interesting private investigator exactly yeah exactly who when you first see her you're kind of like what is this what what is this woman she's about 70 years old she's talking about how she hates the internet and computers But she's really, really thorough and really assiduous, and she's she's following the story where it's going to where it take her, which is, of course, what you must and are obliged to do as a journalist. Even if you, if it's nothing you thought it was going to be, you must follow it, and it's starting to be very, very. Uh, it, it's it's starting to put Teal in a bad position, and Blake, who is her, you know, has been with her for thirteen years, and is Julie, Juliana's husband now. I'm really curious which way Blake is going to go. I, I have a feeling which way it's going to be, and it it doesn't make me happy. <laughs> yeah, it's unclear right now. That's really the cliffhanger of the last episode is what's yeah. going to happen to that long relationship she's had with Blake, um, who's sort of caught between women. And, you know, the private investigator, this is a this is a brilliant conceit on the filmmaker's part to insert this woman who is doing research as a sort of grounding mechanism for the viewer who is uh, similarly trying to synthesize information. We get to have a lot of different points of view. It's an economic way to look at the competing narratives here. Uh, it's very interesting. One thing that Teal Swan did say in her second critique, critique of the second episode, is that that woman is not a private investigator. She was hired by Teal Swan and presented as an independent agent. Wait. All right. So Teal Swan hired her in order to prove that she wasn't a cult? Presumably. Or to ask the question of... Do you think we're a cult? You know, maybe maybe she's worried about getting, uh, you know, investigated by the FBI. But but at any and it, it to me that that's it's interesting, but it doesn't have any bearing. It has no bearing. Uh, it has no bearing who hired the, her. The, no, the discovery that she, the discoveries that she's making um which are really fascinating. It does it does make sense of why it is such an awkward conversation when she calls Blake to say, you know, I just received this contract that, you know, that says such right. things the as non-negotiables. It's the non-negotiables right. that the people on the inner circle have to agree to and a lot of them have to do with like Teal Swan is the most important person, everything comes above her. It is, I mean, it, look, it is super culty. It is, oh. and I don't like to throw that word around. It is super culty, and 100%. you know, it, it, she asks him about it. He's like, "Well, what did you think when you read it?" And she's like, "What I thought was that this is not legal at all." Yeah, there, there were a lot of things that were illegal here. 
Uh, one more thing I want to say about Teal Swan, you know, we're, we're, you know, the people call her like, what did she's like? A, I told her she's, I called her a death eater and people are like, she's a suicide enabler. Um, but there is a scene with one young woman who's really pushing back quite hard um, and then says she's suicidal and they're in the room with Teal Swan and her little inner circle who, you know, they just don't know whether to shit or go blind. And they're waiting on every little movement of of Teal's to react. One thing I thought was incredible in, in episode two, she's sitting there complaining because all she does is complain. And if we could count the number of times she says me and I, it would be the entire episode. She has no zero, zero interest in how anything else in the world is except as relates to her. And she's sitting with them. I was kind of listening, listening, waiting on her every fart. And she starts going like, she starts making this sound that's like, this like weird glottal, like clearing her nose huh. thing. And it's like, everybody just waits and listens to it. First of all, it's just disgusting, huh. but like, who cares? Because she's like the center of the universe. But in any case, when this one woman is, is suicidal, she, first of all, she curses. I, I don't know anybody that says the word fuck more than, than Teal Swan does. But I, she's like, and yeah. if this, if this, uh, oh, you didn't know you do not. I no, you do. don't. I fucking do. You, well, you are starting now. You're like, yeah. Teal Swan ain't gonna best me. That's but, right. um, but, um, She's like, okay, so what? She kills herself, and then what's it going to do to me? This is going to splash back on me and bad publicity. I know everybody has to scramble to figure out how to make it not bad PR for Teal Swan. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was a, that was. A I'm sorry. This is this is this. You know, the accusations that are thrown at her by this one young woman and by Juliana, who is who I'm I'm hoping is quickly going to. Amscray, and I think she probably will be because she wouldn't have been able to mm-hmm. kind of say these things to the camera if she didn't. Um, are 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 completely true? She, she is. She is. She she. I, I texted this to you before. She creates misery in your life. She creates doubt in your life. She says your parents never loved you. Your father fucked you when you were four. You okay. don't remember all these things, but he did. And then she says, and you know what? I'm the only person that can help you with this. But then as soon as that, then she breaks you again. She keeps breaking that bone and letting it pretend heal and breaking it again to keep you absolutely a broken person. What is the definition of a human being that takes her sustenance from breaking your existential bones again and again and again? This this is actually the worst person I've ever seen sort of in modern times uh, on camera, uh, completely. I mean, like I said, there's mil- billions of people in the world. I'm sure there are people worse than Teal Swan, but in recent memory, I haven't seen one. I, I don't want to spend too much time on Teal Swan because we have so many other things to talk about, but uh, you know, next week is going to be the finale. I think everyone should catch up. If they haven't, we'll talk about that again. Um, maybe one we'll more. do another Zoom. We'll do another Zoom. Maybe. Yeah, maybe we'll do another Zoom. Um, the, the two points from the episodes, because we're talking, you know, we're analyzing it, but we're not giving a lot of specifics about what's going on here. There are two very shocking moments in these two episodes to me. Uh, in the second episode, it's the moment when uh, a man has shown up to the retreat. He oh, has man. a mother that has committed suicide. Um, there is a decision made to channel his mother so that he can speak to her. Um, one of the characters comes in and 
channels it. Now, this I could have just talked about this scene forever. And we and you know, like yeah. what is going on, all yeah. the tensions, what is happening. I will yeah. say this moment did not break me the way the third episode did. Because yeah, yes, agreed. because I have friends that have lost people very close to them. They have consulted mediums. I don't know what's happening there, but what they have said to me is, "Look, if it helps me, why do you care?" If it gives me comfort, who cares if it's real? None of us really knows what happens after you die. So if, if this is my interpretation that that I want to spend X amount of dollars to do this, why are you going to argue with me? And I've decided that's exactly right. It's not I, it's not mine. I agree. Oh, sure. Absolutely. The problem for me is who's the person that's telling you that they can do this and what are their ulterior motives? Is that's it right. to just make, make a hundred dollars? Is it to get to you to continually give them money? I mean, this is what, you know, some, you know, some like, you know, the gypsies do or whatever the con people do. It's like a little bit at first and then it's more and more and more and you become dependent. So that, that's, that's what scares me. It's not like that you're going to do and maybe talk to your dead mom. First of all, that man was so broken. It so was broken. so different. It was so difficult to to watch him you know sometimes we will like refer to ourselves like you know the island of misfit toys all their friends are a little weird and messed up in it but it's kind of wonderful the teal teal is full of full of unbelievably broken people um whom she gets really angry with for being broken as soon as they're like broken in a way that she doesn't like she talks to her inner circle and she goes i don't know what the fuck is wrong with these people i don't know what the fuck they want from me if they can't fucking fix it it's like well what Anyway, yeah. The third episode opens with a scene at a kind of Esselin style, you know, session where they are sort of role playing trauma from their youth. This is a group of her trainees. And it's a, it's a very strange sight, but I had never seen anything like it in the sense that what is determined after the role playing this was wild you see uh two people enacting the somebody's youth and the person that has been role playing says you know i was sensing that your father had an inappropriate relationship with someone maybe your and everyone gathers around this person as they cry over the idea that their parents were actually evil i have never seen what is almost certainly 99.9% false backstory inflammatory backstory implanted into an individual that who then crumbled emotionally okay. with the weight of what she did not know all her life. I have never seen anything like this. It was wild and it disgusted me. It disgusted. So let's, I'll just uh, paint it quickly. So Teal Swan says, okay, we're going to do this, right? So they take the one person who's there, who's very sad. She's lonely. She doesn't know what's going on with her life. She's coming here to feel better. And Teal Swan says, well, it's all going, you know, it's all going to emanate from your parents. So she picks three people. One will be the father, one will be the mother, and one yes. will be the broken person as a child. And she sticks them in a corner and tells them to like read enact what the trauma was. Well, of course, these people are also performing for Teal Swan, right? right? They they want to impress her. So they're kind of like saying these things. And at first the girl goes, I don't like, I don't really recognize that I ever felt that way. Cause the like one playing her is saying something like, that doesn't make any sense. And then something else. And then they, then they break. And the one gal's like, well, I sense, you know, your father did this to you. Oh yeah. And then I think your mother touched your brother. 
Oh, yeah. And the horror on this young woman's face, and she's just crumbling. And then they take it out and they just rub it into her. So now she understands what her trauma is so that Teal Swan can fix it. Okay, come on. This is, this is, I, 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 I think I've said this before. I don't like to use the word evil because it's just sort of like this. Yeah. What does yeah. it mean? It's like saying a woman's beautiful. Like, what does that mean? No, this is, this is evil. This is evil. Okay, we've talked enough about Teal Swan. It's, it's really it, like, it is stomach churning, honestly. And and part of me feels bad for asking you to watch it first thing in the morning because the vibes on this are <laughs> yeah. so dark. Yeah. But it's also one of those things that like, if you do watch it, if you dare to tread, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you need like we need we need a community to get make it through this. I mean, like you really need to talk it out because it is like stuff that kind of like for me stays in my nervous system. And I'm like, what was that? That doesn't feel right at all. In a way, it's also a public service on the filmmakers parts to show you how baldly this stuff works. I mean, you know, we can watch a, you know, a documentary about Jim Jones and this is however many 40, 50 years ago. And we can understand like how, you know, he got the people to Guyana and made them drink the, the flavor aid. Um, but this is very, very, there's, you very, very clearly see how people are taken in and, and maybe that's actually helpful uh, to some people. So, I think it is. I mean, you know, I I was texted by a friend who listens to our podcast and she said, you know, I actually follow Teal Swan on Instagram. And wow. one of the things that is made clear in this documentary or whatever this this series you want to call it is that there is an outer circle of self-help and an inner circle that m- looks more like a cult. So so there is a public face of Teal Swan that is very, very different, far more expansive than this inner circle of what the, these people that are doing this deep soul retrieval process. Yep. Um, my friend said, you know, I don't want to watch the, the, the series because I'm afraid. I can't remember what she said. Like, it'll it'll turn me on or it'll get dark or I, I'll, uh, I'll be think? upset or something like that. And I, you know, I, I, we're supposed to take a walk next week and I'm going to ask her a little bit more about this because, you know, the idea that it's, you know, I, I don't want to look at that. It's, it's a human impulse for sure, but it's also sort of like a, why, what are you getting out of this person? Uh, not to put my friend on the spot. She's a very smart, lovely woman, but I, you know, I was defending Teal Swan's YouTube videos. They're fine. But I also sort of don't know what it is uniquely that she contributes because it doesn't, her message doesn't seem to me terribly revelatory or interesting. I'll say one last thing about her. Her, you know, she's she's kind of an attractive person. She's kind of not. It's kind of hard to, you have to look look at her face. Like at first she looks sort of arrestingly attractive and then you look a little more like, well, maybe not. But anyway, she, she uses her um, sexuality. So it's like, yeah, you know what? You know why they hate me? They hate me because I have a vagina and they hate me because I'm beautiful and they hate me because I have power. And then she's like sitting with Blake and going like, so like, how are you going to reconcile like your feelings for my titties? You know, like, it's like she, she's using it. She's, she's using it both ways. She's just absolutely bald about it. There there is a YouTube uh, clip that I sent you that was sent to me by a friend who's become fascinated with Teal Swan as well. This is from a local Idaho news station prior to her, uh, I think, like national explosive popularity or whatever. And she's talking much more openly about the satanic 
mumbo jumbo. And, you know, there's, it is, you got to watch this. We got a link in the episode notes. It is really worth watching. And, you know, she's doing this thing, talking about like watching little kids be roasted alive. It's just eye popping stuff. And then they do a cutaway shot of her and her dress is up to her thighs and she has killer legs. And I mean, she is using it. I mean, hey, what is she doing? She's smoking them if she's she's got them. Right. Smoke them if you got them, girl. did we ever explain? So what that, it's a, it's a World War II expression. You explained I don't it. Okay. So it's like, you know, use what you got. She's using what you got. But see, Sarah, Hepla, we use ours for the good, right? I use I my sex so. appeal for the greater good. I use I my sex do. appeal for the greater good. That's right. That's our next tattoo. Our so next, um, next t-shirt. Hey, we are so hot on Teal Swan that we buried the lead in a way we did not start with the biggest news of the week. That's that's right, Sarah Heppler. Why don't you lead us off? I don't know if you've heard, but there's been a verdict. Yeah. Oh, was there in the death? Oh, yeah. Is that what, what you mean? Oh, really? Yeah. I read a, a, a little bit about it on the interwebs. There's been a think- few. A few people have opinions. Were there people writing opinion pieces? Oh my yeah. God. What were the What were the opinions about? <laughs> Our world is <laughs> fucked. Oh, yeah, basically, whatever. Like, like uh, that's not true. There, there's, there's uh, this this opinion, which, if for some strange reason you don't know, uh, the jury find in favor of Johnny Depp on all three counts of defamation. They offered him compensatory damages, meaning lost wages from the the damage for this this at ten million. They offered him punitive damages at five million. Uh, that was knocked down to something like three thirty-five thousand oh, by the yeah. judge because there's a cap in Virginia. Amber Heard won one of her defamation claims <clears throat> against uh, Depp's lawyer Adam Waldman speaking on his behalf in the Daily Mail. It concerned a quote he had about her roughing up the place before she called police. Um, she was awarded two million in compensatory damages, no money in punitive damages, and that will be taken out of what she owes to Depp. So it's a it's total for him like eight point three million. She doesn't uh, probably doesn't have that money. I saw that her lawyer was on. The morning shows this morning saying that she might file for bankruptcy. We've also heard she might appeal. Uh, Amber Heard might appeal this. Um, okay, so there's been a lot of commentary on this. And, and you know, we had a, a cool Zoom event where our listeners came in and we talked about it in real time. I was trying to figure it out in the moment because I found this very shocking. I, I, I actually was very surprised by the verdict, mostly because it is such a high bar to for a defamation suit. So going into this, it really felt like it was Amber Heard's case to lose. And so I, it took me a little bit of time and a little bit of thinking and reading to really come out on why I think this happened. Of course, this is just my best guess. But here is my best guess on why I think this trial went in Johnny Depp's favor. One, I think that there is a big difference between a jury trial and a judge trial. 
I think that the UK trial that the son eventually won was done by a judge. I think that a judge is going to be a little bit more dispassionate. Uh, I think that when you have a jury trial, there's going to be a lot more like personal connection to the people themselves. I don't think there's any question that Johnny Depp was the more likable character. And I hate to make it sound so simple, but I mean, like, I do think she did not come off like a good faith actor in this trial. He was more believable. She had a stiff and haughty and then occasionally pleading, you know, sort of direct, direct plea. She kind of toggled between like a strange emotional expressiveness and an iciness. He had a very supplicating, um, you know, almost like subservience, you know. He was very, he seemed quiet and thoughtful and wounded. I mean, you know, like these, this is going to maybe sound shallow, but these things really matter, especially when one of the things that you are kind of trying to figure out is which of these people uh, is the abuser if there's only, if we only can decide for one of them. The I'm going to just thing- interrupt you for one yeah, second. Of course. I just want to mention, so I did not watch a whole lot of the, um, of the trial on video, but I did link you um, that one particular scene where uh, Depp's attorney, Vasquez, was that her last name? The female Camille. one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, she's talking to uh, Amber Heard and trying to get her to explain the difference, or she's trying to explain the difference between pledging and donating, actually mm. doing the, the the donation. And so she would look at, she would, um, um, Heard would look at Vasquez while she was asking, and then she would turn her head and look at the jury to answer. She did this, it was like a two and a half minute clip. She did this like 19 times, the head turning and that simple act of being so clunky, clunk, 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 worked mm-hmm. against her. And, and this has nothing to do with even basically what she's saying. But when you think about Depp, who stayed very calm, it's like if it's like if you're taking a boat straight through the yeah. water, like in a direct sort of even way, or if the boat is like clunking back and forth and she, she seemed clunky to me and that sort of counts right when you're actually not only for the jury but for the camera so okay continue Uh, absolutely and you know and I think the other thing that is really crucial in this case and I spent a fair bit of time yesterday thinking about the fact you know because this is a defamation trial this is not a trial about who was abused or whether one person was abused more than the other. This is a trial about defamation. And I spent some time thinking about one of the lines from her op-ed for which it was decided that it was defamatory. And it's the line, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse. Now, when I first read this, I was like, well, I mean, it's, yeah, absolutely. How can you say that's defamatory? She did. And then I thought more about it yesterday and I was like, wait a minute. No, she didn't. No, she really didn't. She was always a public figure representing a toxic relationship. A very messed up toxic relationship. You know, her her bruises from the courthouse were on the cover of People magazine, but this is all pre-Me Too. And there was like a, there was at the time, 
still like the, the cover line there is like inside their toxic marriage. I think there was still an idea that like this was mutual abuse. And what happens when she writes that op-ed in 2018 is that she rebrands herself as a public figure representing domestic abuse. Well, with the help of the ACLU, who was looking for an ambassador to be that survivor of domestic abuse. Absolutely. But yes, yes. But rebranding yourself in such a sort of noble public fashion as a as solely a survivor of domestic and a sex and sexual abuse when in fact the story the public lore and the court records show you to be someone who has also been an abuser is yeah. really is I, I, it's false information, even though it's so simple, like on one level, how could, you know, cause I saw critiques of this in, you know, like the New Yorker and some other places that were like, how could you ever say this was defamatory? But I think they're not thinking hard enough about the way that that simple sentence pushed out into the 2018 world of America was, you know, completely recast her in a different role. And it is defamatory against him. And she, you know, because there's nothing in that piece that's like, you know what? I was in a really difficult relationship. He hit me. I hit him. It was so ugly. He started it, but I kept it going. Like there's, there's none which would of have that. Been, which would have been a beautiful and valid piece to read. That would be a, that would be a piece that's useful to the culture and to other people who are in this situation. 100%. 100%. And she could have done that. She could have done that if she wanted I, to. I don't know if the ACLU would have had any interest in being part of that, but she could have done that. No, but I like would. the moment, like 2018 needed that kind yeah. of complication. What it didn't need was, sorry, but a fame hungry starlet using her own troubled past uh, with a very troubled man as so, an, a ticket into a position as women's ambassador for voices at the ACLU and to weaponize her past to basically create a situation where he was going to have a career downfall. Now, uh, I, I spent some time yesterday watching again their marital therapist, which I find to be like some testimony is ways heavier than others. And I think that testimony from from a woman named Dr. Laurel Anderson, she's an L.A. therapist she saw the couple in 2015. Um, it had been a long time, so it was really foggy. She was working from her notes. But I mean, this was one of those testimonies that I really felt like, you know what, I'm really seeing this marriage. Because she saw Amber individually, and then she saw them as a couple. And what Amber says is, look, he hits me, but I hit him back. And as the violence stopped, I started to instigate it more and more. Um, she has a sort of point of pride of giving as good as she gets, although that is 
Johnny Depp's word for her. Um, When she sees the couple together, she says, well, there was a problem that I wanted to speak to Johnny about individually. He was having a little trouble with the process. And I'm thinking in my head, Ugh, guys are the worst in therapy. They hate therapy. They don't believe in it. They, he wants out of it. And, and so the question to her is, well, what problem was he having? And the therapist says, finding his voice. Oh, he couldn't get a word in edgewise because she kept interrupting him. Later, she says, you know, Johnny Depp is a very articulate person when he's allowed to speak. But she did. But but also, I mean, we are again, it's pre me too. That's right. But. Uh. I guess, I don't know who instigated the therapy, who wanted to start uh, the therapy. It, it's Amber. Amber wants to start the therapy. This is this is at a time where I believe they've just gotten married. They're having a lot of really bad fights. Um, I think some really ugly things happened. And in case, in fact, I want to say more about one of them, which is an incident on the plane um, in a minute. But they're having a lot of trouble. They come to this therapist, you know, she instigates it. He comes on. These therapy sessions are like three and a half hours, two and a half hours long. These probably are cost like oh, thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars. And, uh, you know, but uh, you know, again, the, the, the essay that you described that she could have written or that I described whoever, yep. you know, you, you yep. sort of articulated on it would be fascinating. This is a situation what the therapist says is that Johnny Depp was not violent in previous relationships. This woman triggered him probably because she was so much like his mother. He became violent, according to her notes, in a way that he never had before. He was deeply ashamed of it. He had a drug and alcohol problem that was worse than it had ever been on top of these things. He was a blackout drinker, and a lot of times he did not remember what he had done, um, which is what I want to get to in a minute. But that there was, you know, something in her that was... Provoking? Somewhere between provoking, feeding... um, unwilling to walk away from it. She would start hitting him to keep him around, you know, because once they were in a fight, he wouldn't leave. Um, That was what would like get his attention and keep him. Now I have seen this in relationships where people are starting fights just to keep the other one around. Right. But if it's like, if we can't have love anymore, we'll have, you know, we'll have conflict. We'll it's have, a replacement. Yeah. It's a exactly. replacement for love. Exactly. Yeah. Now, there is an article by the New Yorker writer Jessica Winters. Um, it was, she's a good, I'm sorry, Winter. It's a, there's only one Winter in her name. Um, <laughs> she's, a, she's not a writer I knew. She is a good writer in the sense that like she's a pretty writer. I believe she's a novelist. She had written another piece that I, I saw a lot of people praising, so I read it. I was not actually personally very impressed by it. Right. Um, this one came out. Uh, it got my attention. It was called The Johnny Depp Amber Heard Verdict is Chilling. This is the word that I have seen many, many times that this, this verdict will have a chilling effect on victims of domestic violence. Uh, the subhead says that these victims, victims who watch this trial will likely conclude that if they share their experiences, they will be disbelieved, shamed, and ostracized. 
Now, I'm going to add an asterisk to this. If they are as problematic a figure as Amber Heard and... <laughs> and have reason to believe they won't be believed. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, this the, the other side here, look, you've got, this woman has a lot of great points in this article and I'm going to point them yeah. out. But you got, You've got to stop pretending like Amber Heard is simply a, quote, imperfect victim. Oh, my darling. Uh, th- th- there is not. so much more. Th- this is like saying this is, uh, you know, as hoodwinked as saying Johnny Depp is just another, you know, like likable drunk. He He's a fucked up guy. He's got a lot of trouble. It's a lot worse than you think it is. And that is true for Amber Heard. This is somebody who really, really did herself no favors by the, um, you know, I don't know what she experienced in the course of this marriage, but the way that she weaponized the stories for maximum carnage just is gross to me. It's gross. I'm going to, I'm going to jump. I'm going to let you get back to Winter's piece. Um, So uh, Matt Welch was texting me a whole bunch of pieces yesterday and one's from Rolling Stone, which is not particularly been covering itself in glory for the past couple of years. And um, the, the, the title is men always win in quotes, surviving survivors sickened uh, by the Amber Heard verdict. It didn't matter what the verdict was as one domestic survivor put it. This case is my worst fear playing out on a public stage. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically it's saying what you're saying. It's like, wow, now, you know what? Women would have come forward with their tales of domestic abuse, but now they're not going to because they're so influenced by this and they're convinced they're never going to be believed. But here was the the pull quote that, not pull quote, but the quote I took from it. The, the person he's talking to, oh, first name only, Megan. Megan initially tried to avoid the Depp Heard trial as much as she could, as it caused her to experience PTSD flashbacks. So I remembered basically to the my favorite article that I've read of the year, which was the New Yorker piece, The Case Against the Trauma Plot, yeah. where the author of that piece wrote, in quotes, traumatic flashbacks were reported only after the invention of film. Okay, so first of wow. all- wow. Right. Okay. So wow. these trauma, right? These traumatic flashbacks that everybody's experiencing, which we 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 don't even question anymore. It's absolutely common knowledge that this is absolutely going to happen if you have PTSD. Actually, have only been around for a hundred years, right? Because of this. Um, I, I'll just say, and I'll let you get back because you've read these articles more more uh, with more detail than I did because I've been traveling, but every single piece that I saw yesterday, and, and except for one. And I think the winter's one was interesting. It's all about like this, in quotes, this very important and dangerous story that we must report today exactly in the same way as every other place is reporting it. And that message is that survivors now, again, will never speak up. We have gone backwards in the culture and and people that experience domestic abuse or any kind of abuse have so little agency and are so completely influenced and terrified by this case that they are now forever be locked into their PTSD because they will never, ever, because of the Depp Heard trial, ever report what has happened to them because they will not be believed. And of course, being said or not said, actually just elided over, is exactly what you said, that Heard was the perfect victim. She's done absolutely nothing wrong. And yet, even her, even she, will not 
be given justice. Now, of course, I'm exaggerating to prove my point, but these are the messages of the pieces we saw yesterday. And I thought, you know, journalists, can you be a little more creative than that? Can you look a little deeper? Can you be the Amber Heard we didn't get in 2018 and write a fuller accounting of what this is? Some people I'm sure have, and you're you're going to point them out because you're studying this more than I am, and you're also going to write it. You're yeah, going that's to write right. It. I'm I'm actually working on my story right now. I'm yeah. I'm writing the story I wanted to see in the world. Right. Um I will I will it's so long and and involved that's and fine. ambitious that it's going to come out when everybody's done with this damn story. But I'm, I'm still going to put starting, it into the world. I'm starting to do my own here on a on a situation where uh, you know, I, I sat last night and had a burger with a former, uh, 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 was he was the deputy commander of the whole uh, San Francisco Police Department. And oh, wow. we talked about the fact that were it 2018, were it 20, okay, in 2018, Amber Heard could, that big giant wave that was Me Too, you could just jump right in it, baby. Just jump right in it. This wave is going to take you. It's warm. It's going to go to shore, you can just jump on and ride it. And she did, or she thought she did. And that kind of piece went, and there was no brouhaha about it, except I'm sure in Johnny Depp's camp. And and she she thought it was going to work out. Well, it's 2022, and time's arrow flies, right? And yeah. so here we are today. And it was the same talking to this, this former commander. I was like, if it were 2018, would we be recalling Chesa Boudin, who's this incredibly progressive D- DA? And he's like, no, because people wouldn't have spoken up then because we were riding the wave that was wanting better better criminal justice, which we still do, um, and also Me Too. And it was like, it was the time where you didn't speak up about it. You didn't question it. We would not have, we would not have been recalling him. So yeah, I'm starting on my own, my own uh, ancillary sort of a uh, piece in tandem with what, uh, with your writing. With, uh, very, with very exciting. Asian. I'm, I'm, with that will Asian. be an education for me. Um, one of the reasons that people or journalists can't write about this case with much depth or insight there's two reasons one is that we have this demand for you know instant takes uh that really that really defies deep thinking but the other one is that a lot of these people have not really paid attention to this trial even if they say they have paid attention to the trial what they've mostly seen is tiktok and youtube videos they have not it it, it demands believe me it takes a lot out of a person to watch this trial i have i it's something like 100 hours i've watched probably a good 50 of them but there's plenty of that i've missed because i have a life and a job away from <laughs> watching the Depp Heard trial But some journalists are paying more attention than others. And I do want to give Jessica Winter credit for this because in her piece, she brings up a piece of evidence that had been ruled out from this trial that was in the UK trial that I did not know about. And this concerns a flight that the couple took together in, I believe, 2014. Depp is out of his mind on drugs and drink. The one, we did hear stories about this plane flight and she says he kicked him and I kept thinking, oh no, that he, kicked he, her? he says, she says he kicked her. And I kept thinking, it's a flight. Where are the witnesses? Like why, you know, what's going on? We do hear audio of him in a bathroom making a moaning sound that is, I don't, it is so creepy to hear someone out of their mind 
on drugs and drink because they are so altered. And it is, but again, these were inconclusive pieces of data um, when given just sort of piecemeal like this. One of the things that happened in the UK trial is that Depp's sort of very good friend and right-hand man, a guy named Stephen Deuters, had testified, and this allowed them to bring out text messages that he had with Amber Heard after this incident took place. And he says to Amber, when I told him he kicked you, he cried. He's a lost little boy and he needs all the help he can get. Now, this was fascinating to me. And she responds, he's done this before. Tokyo, the island, London, always believe he's going to get better. Well, look, we never know the truth of what's going on in other people's relationships. But this, to me, is a very classic relationship with a blackout drunk. And in fact, Depp texts her after this happens. Once again, I find myself in a place of shame and regret. Of course, I am sorry. I really don't know why or what happened. Now, if there is anybody that can sympathize with how Johnny Depp was feeling in this moment, it is yours truly. I wrote an entire book to try to deal with the shame and regret I had for doing things that I did not remember. The number of times I was told, do you know what you did last night? And then heard some wretched story of pouring beer on somebody's head, telling a roommate she was a bitch, flashing my boobs to a senior citizen, (laughs) mooning a bunch of people in a parked car. The things that I did when I was blackout drunk, it's tragic because it's not me, but it is me. It is me without the governors of my good sense because I drank them away. And I drank them away because it felt like a kind of freedom. But if you drink too far, as I did, as Johnny Depp does, what you will find is the animal unleashed. What he did to her in a blackout, in blackouts, is probably horrific. And, you know, she makes a point in her text messages, you know, I know he doesn't remember. Unfortunately, I remember everything. This is the burden of the person that is not in a blackout, is that it happened to them. But the person who perpetrated whatever it is has no memory of it. Right. This is the dastardly trick of the neurological quirk, which is blackout drinking. Um, this is why I said I could not believe Johnny Depp when he stood on the stand, sat on the stand, and said, my drinking has never hurt anybody else. What? Oh, he, he said, said that? that? He said that at one point. Oh, he said, my drinking has only hurt me. And well, that's I mean, just flat out fucking wrong. It should have been. She has also hurt me. Right? He, well, just, he, just he could wasn't. say he could say my my drinking mostly hurts me. My drinking 
is meant to hurt me, my drinking, I only, I only know about, but you know, you can't be a lousy drunk for 25, 30, 40 years, whatever it is running for him and say that. And, you know, nobody to my knowledge is going to pull him up on perjury for that. I actually think he believes it. So I don't know if that really matters. Well, if you don't remember, if you don't remember that you've done these things and you're also involved with someone who's telling you in a way where she's, you know, I mean, maybe she did at the beginning, you sweetly like, you know, you get down and you hold your lover's hand, your husband's hand and you say, you know, baby, last night was not good. Yeah. It wasn't good. You, you did these things and, and they're like, oh, I don't remember. But then as the years go by and she's, yes. you know, actually giving as good as she gets, then you're just like, it becomes this battle. Like, I didn't do that. I didn't and do that. I don't believe you anymore. If he starts to believe that she is gaslighting him all the time, he starts to disbelieve the early stories of abuse. And in fact, when this guy, Stephen Deuters, when, he, you know, when he testifies in the UK trial, he's, you know, there, there are these text messages, but he says later on the stand, you know, like, I knew that Amber was volatile and I was trying to assuage her. Like I was trying to not trip her up because Johnny wanted her to come back. It's unclear to me whether or not Deuter saw this. He later would testify. It wasn't Depp kicking her. It was Depp playfully tapping her and trying to get her to come back. Now, this hmm. is all that perspective. Little, What's yeah. a tap? What's a kick? When people are drunk, they tend to not know their own strength. They're, you know, I, I just, sloppy. I don't, they fall down. sloppy. It's, this yeah. is very, th this is uh, what's, what's clear to me though, is that some really ugly stuff did happen in the course of that relationship. Johnny Depp's hands are not clean. Um, and I, I hope that when people talk about this trial, I don't think this will happen, but that they did, don't perceive Amber. This is not a trial that says Amber Heard is guilty of a hoax. This is a trial where it was decided that what Amber Heard said in an op-ed was defamatory. It cost right. him. It cost him his job. And it was done with malice. I'm still so I'm still so confused, and I and I, I have to I'm I'm sort of have to take responsible for my own con responsibility for my own confusion because I haven't looked it up. But confused and somewhat surprised that this would come out and then like bingo, Disney's like you're out. It just seems like they're meaning he's out of the job as as Captain Jack Sparrow. I, I it just seems like there might be more to it than that. Like maybe so they were her, looking for a reason to get yeah, rid of him. Yeah, and and so that's certainly what her side tried to present. You know, Depp was a difficult person. You know, he's well liked on the set until he starts showing up late. Yep. The crew has to stay late. Yeah, he yeah. had an earpiece. Now, one side told you that that was because he was so addled he couldn't remember his lines. Another side said he liked to listen to music. Um, what? Yeah. 
I think both. I think he probably did like to listen to music, but I think he really genuinely needed the earpiece. Apparently he had learned this from Marlon Brando, who did it in Apocalypse Now, one of his heroes and good friends. You know, Depp's heroes are men like Hunter S. Thompson and Marlon Brando and Jack Kerouac. These are men that really are pathetic characters they in by the end they are actually all towering figures in the beginning and you know gosh particularly brando have you ever seen anybody lose their own inner light i have a tiny story i'm gonna break my dad grew up in the west village my dad was born in 1935 and he lived on barrow street and when he was about I don't know, 10, 11, something like that. Marlon Brando moved across the street uh, in a little apartment with his roommate, Wally Cox, who was an actor. And he had, Marlon Brando had a motorcycle and he used to give the kids rides on his motorcycle. Anyway, that's that's my little break in the action. (laughs) Marlon Brando in Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, holy crap. I mean, come on. I'm ditching Robert De Niro who did not (laughs) call me after my last podcast. And I am doubling down on Marlon Brando in Streetcar Named Desire. If you are out there, call me. Yeah, you know, but Robert De Niro is really aging a lot better than Oh, God. (laughs) He's still a looker. That's why why I sent out my love signal. Yeah. But, you know, it's, you know, Marlon Brando was just this, you know, he had really collapsed into a kind of hedonism um, that is unfortunately often the lot of people that have the money and the sort of enablers to disappear like that. I'm going to pick my movie star of your, and I'll I'll pick Gary Cooper. Interesting, interesting choice. Yeah, I like him. I okay. don't really. Can I just ask you a real quick question? Yeah. What's a movie with Gary Cooper? Uh, the Fountainhead. Okay. What's a movie that I might have seen with Gary Cooper? Uh, for whom the bell tolls? Maybe. Okay. There's, we're just Nothing. adding. Okay. Zero. Never mind. He did a. Um, the, there's some uh, high noon. I think. Yeah, it's just anyway, not. Never it's mind. Just not my. Never no, mind. no, 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 no. I just remember I knew him from the musical Annie. They were like Gary Cooper and da 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 da. I anyway. kind of know who he is more because he he had a relationship with the actress Patricia Neal. Do you know who she is? Patricia no. Neal was married to Raoul Dahl. Uh, they had a bunch of children. I actually know her children and her, her grandchild is one of my, my daughter's best friends. But in any case, they did this movie, The Fountainhead. And, um, is it based on the Anne Rand? Anne Rand, yeah. And it's just like incredibly, you know, romantic and black and white. And Gary Cooper's just towering and gorgeous and, you know, so staunch in his beliefs and his morals and all this, just like the book, right? Whatever you think of, of the book. But um, they were, he was married and she, he was probably, I don't know, 40 or something like that time. She was a young actress, beautiful, tall, statuesque. And um, they had a relationship and she got pregnant and um, he, couldn't wouldn't get a divorce or whatever and she had an abortion now this is back in the wow the early 50s or something like this maybe even earlier and she wrote actually a very 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 good autobiography years ago i think it's called as i am 
And she said it was the biggest regret of her life that she aborted that child. Now, of course, she went on and she married Raul Dahl and had five children and a career. And um, but she she said that was the biggest the biggest regret of her life. I'm, I'm looking at pictures of Gary Cooper right now, mm-hmm. and what I'm going to observe two things: a young Gary Cooper uh, looks quite a bit like Paul Newman, and who's also no, he's he's not a slacker either. Oh. Really. Woo. <laughs> Paul Newman and the Hustler. I have a Paul Newman story too. Come to mama. Hold on. Before that, I just want to make an observation. Yep. I think you like a little bit more of a rugged man. And I like a little bit more of a boyishly handsome pretty boy. Sure. I'll go with that. I also like American guys. Like people are like, oh, you like like Italian guys, Israeli guys. It's like, I, I, I like, I like American guys. What does like, that I mean? I mean, I know that. What does that mean? Just in terms of their style and their That's looks. So and their I, was, I, was, I was sitting with, uh, who was I with the other day? I was with, I think, Michael Moynihan and Matt Welch. And we were talking about something. Uh, Michael's wife is, is Swedish and Irish and talking about Scandinavians or something. And Matt's like, oh, well, you know, those Scandinavian guys, they're like so handsome, right? And I was like, I don't, I'm not attracted to like in the aggregate to like Scandinavian guys, I like American guys. I know that sounds ridiculous and xenophobic. Okay. You want to remember Paul Newman's story? Okay. Yes. Nope. But real quick, can I just, yep. can I just yep. give back as good as I got and tell you yes. that I like Polynesian men a lot. I like Italian oh, men a lot. See, And I see? like, um, there's a type. I, Latin men are completely, they undo me. Um, I think Israeli guys are kind of sexy too. Oh yeah. That's your rugged thing. Yeah, I like I like us. When I was in uh, Ukraine, <laughs> guys. Well, first of all, I just I really met such interesting and 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 wonderful people, including this Ukrainian guy who was coming from Rotterdam to go back home to check on his family and the kids, not his kids, but uh, and um, they were so sort of like straight ahead masculine. There's just like this, like oh, just in general, kind of the women too, just like these fighters and um mm. they, I fa- I do I find that I find that very I find that very attractive. Okay, but, I mean, very- one more thing I'm going to say is that I love all men. <laughs> hashtag all men. I all men. Hashtag all men. Love all men. Um my my this is a, so, so bad. I'm telling on myself. Uh I uh was um like 14 and I was going for an au pair job. I had to go up to the Upper East Side. I, of course, put on like a, maybe I was 16, I don't know, put on like a cute little dress. It was summertime and I'm walking down the street to go to where I'm going for the meeting at these people's apartment. And who do I see walking down the street toward me? It's Paul Newman. And he's got on like some mirrored shades. And I, of course, saw who he was, but I kind of just played coy. And I was like, oh, excuse me, do you know what time it is? And he stopped no way. and he looked at me and he took off his sunglasses so no. I could see who he is. And I was like, I said, oh my God, my mother loves you. And so do I. That's <laughs> 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 so stupid. <laughs> and I didn't get the au pair job either. But anyway, I had my, that was my little run in with uh, Paul Newman. So I could not have handled and- growing up in New York. I could not have handled walking down the street and seeing some matinee idol. What? It's New York. You know, I sat, I actually sat on the plane yesterday next to like the nicest people, this young, like 20 something year old kid from San Francisco. And then this woman, Jean-Marie to my right, like just really, really nice people. And he's been living in New York for two months. And he's like, you know, the thing about New York is that like, there's all these things happening and like you go out and you see this. I was like, yeah, that's, that's the truth. That's right. That's right. He nailed it. <laughs> He's so cute, though. He's like, can I tell you something? I'm like, sure. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> but before we leave Depp Heard, can you fill us in on what's going on with the ACLU? 
Yeah, well, okay. So I saw this tweet. It was a couple of nights ago after the verdict had dropped. And it said, you know, the ACLU is suing uh, Johnny Depp to recoup the monies that it said it cost them to provide him with the documents that his lawyers wanted. And I can't remember if it was like like $83,000 or something like that. But you know what? I looked into that a little more deeply because of course, you know, one thing that we've sort of, or not we, but the, the, that, it, that I keep seeing these articles about like this opinion piece that Amber Heard wrote. And I'm like, yeah, that the ACLU wrote. Okay. And then they roped her into, I, I, they kind of conveniently forgetting this. But the ACLU did not get sued by 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 Depp's team. The Washington Post did not get sued by Depp's team. But they needed they needed the documents, you know, whether the emails and the text messages and what that created this opinion piece. So they 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 want their money back. And I think I might be getting this wrong. Again, one of the, our lawyer listeners can tell us that in New York, um, I think it was New York State. I think that's. Well, actually, I don't really know what what branch of the ACLU w- was creating this. Um, like you're allowed to recoup the money that you like you, the legal team that wants the stuff from you. You're mm-hmm. allowed to charge them, you know, to get that stuff because okay. you got to you got to gather it. But the thing is that what very few people are talking about, though I have seen some people allude to it, is that the ACLU created this mess. I mean, without the ACLU. We would not be here now. Would Amber Heard have done something else? Sure, sure. We don't. We don't know. But this was the the sort of like honeypot that they created that she jumped into that then like turned on them. And I, I, I mean, we all. I mean, we're going to get into this sometime. I'm going to actually do a podcast with Matt, Wel- Matt Welch about this for the Paloma Media Podcast. Going to talk about what's happened to the ACLU, which, you know, most of us in journalism know it has just become a very, very different organization than it was. It's become an activist organization. And and uh, Laura Bazelon, whom I'm actually going to be uh, seeing later today, she's a, she's a professor of law at the University of San Francisco Law School. She had a piece in The Atlantic that we'll li- link to the other day talking about what a failure the ACLU has been throughout mm-hmm. this entire process and other processes. And it, it really is... It's a shame and it's it's a shambles, and it it'll be interesting to see uh, what comes in to do a better job to do what the ACLU um, started out doing. And there's actually there's a great documentary called I think it's called Mighty Ira about Ira Glasser, who was the head oh, yeah. of the ACLU for a long time. It's really really worth watching. The guy is super charming. He's funny. He's a New Yorker. He plays basketball. He's just it's a really great story, and we will definitely definitely put a link to that um, in the show notes as well as to a uh, to uh, Laura's article. And one of the other subsidiary uh, dramas of this is the what concerns the Washington Post. I mean, they really have egg on their face here and they're not saying anything about it. And well, you know, what can I they really say? well, I mean, they could say something. Well, how can they how can they, they defend could say themselves? something? Somebody could make a defense of that piece. Somebody could, you know, explain why it was that they decided this was an important piece of writing. I'd like to hear that. But what the truth is, is that op-ed sections um have lost their way. Oh and my god. They are oh hijacked god, yes. horribly by the need to have clicks. Um, you know, like so much of media, they have been hijacked toward the need for traffic. This is not, I, do, I don't think anybody in that department thought, well, this is a really smart and interesting and original piece. It was a 
piece of PR that had been cooked up by the ACLU that they put in their pages and online because they knew it would get traffic. So I, um, Taylor Lorenz, the journalist who's got her own uh, voracious appetite for for drama and making everything about her, um, blocked me a number of years ago on Twitter. I have no idea why. We'd never, ever had any interaction as far as I know, but okay. Um, But uh, uh, Matt uh, linked me a tweet uh, that I couldn't see of hers. But basically she said uh, she, she, I guess, took two or three of the pieces yesterday, the like, see, see, nothing's ever going to get better for women. And, uh, and said, see, see, basically like this proves it. This proves that, you know, we're right with what we've been saying all along. It's like, lady, get out of the echo chamber and do something a little more a little more interesting. So I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that the Washington Post, uh, they've got Margaret Sullivan as one of their main opinion pieces. They're, 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 they're writing, as I've been told, they're writing what people want to hear. They're not, I mean, I want to read things that I'm not anticipating. Well, newspapers are over a barrel because they really have to appeal to subscribers right now. And in order, like the best way to, to appeal to subscribers, at least according to them, this is a short-term strategy, long-term loss is to tell them what they want to hear. And so they're doing it. But what is a really good way to get subscribers is to have sort of provocative, enterprising journalism that challenges and expands the reader's mind. I think this is something The Atlantic is doing really yep. well. Yes, they are. And 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 what I really love is that half, well, I wouldn't say a half, I would say 25% of the time The Atlantic runs something that I'm just like, oh my God, what? I completely think otherwise. But it's well presented. Yeah, it is not. It it's never. Um, it's never superficial. And then they run things that you just. I mean, that make you weep. That are just like so, are so thought provoking and so important. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I don't think there's anybody in the business that's doing it as well as the Atlantic Tablet Magazine. Also does a great job. I've mm-hmm. I've written a few things for them. Really interesting people over there. Um, but yeah, the Washington Post um, has really, I, I think, has probably failed, I guess, even more across the board than the New York Times has. I mean, the New York Times still runs incredible journalism. I rarely read anything in the Post that I'm like, wow, look at the way they address that issue. I still think they have some amazing investigative journalists. And when I was doing the cheerleaders piece, their coverage, I did a podcast on the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders, and their coverage of the Washington football scandal was very exhaustive. And, you know, I don't know if you saw any of that. I don't, it I don't know what that Dan is. Snyder and the, they're just more, it's more trouble to even get okay. into it. Well, but, but, but okay. I just want to say that like, I, I did, that's why I, I, I had to get a subscription to the Washington Post, <clears throat> excuse me, because I kept <clears throat> going back to their website and being paywalled out and I needed it for my reporting. There was just a lot of really great <clears throat> reporting around i'm teal swanning right now <laughs> <laughs> you don't remember that you don't remember no, what I, you did, did I didn't notice that's probably, that probably so lost on me because i'm just a gross smoker that's always coughing um th- there was one thing i was going to say about the atlantic which was that uh they ran one of my favorite pieces of the year which was john heights piece on um people the internet being uniquely stupid is what I remember about the headline. Do you know Jonathan Haidt? I do. I've met him a, uh, once or twice. Yeah, he's I my know crush everybody of, has. He's, he's my everybody crush of the week. has a crush on him. Everybody crush has, of the week. and he's 
he actually is quite, he's quite handsome and charming and kind of tall and just like slightly awkward, which I, yeah, I he looks dorky. He looks like love. dorky hot. He's dorky yeah, hot. I know. That's I, such a like good third or fourth. Cause yeah, if you're, of mine you're, that cause said, if you're a real a person, yeah. If you're a real person, you actually have this like delusion that you might have a chance because he's like, I'll, maybe the other girls don't notice that he's really cute. <laughs> I'll send you a picture of me sitting right next to him. We're kneeling next to each other. It's just going to be, it's going to be super hot, Sarah. Um, oh my God. So he was on Megan Downs podcast this week. I want to make a quick plug for it. Uh, Megan is a friend of ours. Uh, yep. She does Love a podcast Megan. called uh, The Unspeakable. It's excellent always. But this week's conversation with Jonathan Haidt is, I found it fundamentally soothing. Like, oh, interesting. Rarely do I encounter a man with such bad news delivered so gently like Aww. Jonathan Haidt. Like there was just something Aww. so calming about his way of viewing the world and sharing with you what's going on. And I just, I, I love listening to him. I went through a very rough patch where I was just seeking out interviews with him, like any that I could find because it, I found his voice soothing and also his sort of like, it's hell, but I'm still an optimist. You know, like the world is yep. falling apart, yep. but we are yep. still here and we're still lucky to be in it. I found that so calming. So his, uh, Greg Lukianoff, who he wrote The Coddling of the American Mind with, you and I have have discussed the idea of maybe getting uh, Greg uh, uh, to podcast with us with yes. us to talk about trauma because he's written about a lot about trauma. And I do believe it was in the coddling of the American mind where I first saw the, uh, the phrase post-traumatic growth syndrome, which I, you know, I don't actually spend a lot of time kind of trawling in psychiatric waters. It's just not my thing. I don't find it. I, it's just not something I'm attracted to, but, um, I read that and instantly I was like, swing. Yep. I get that. Like I, I, I believe it. And I probably live it. I don't really know because it really is like, did you consider that thing to be traumatic? It's like, no. And somebody else is like, what are you talking about? It was terrible. So um, anyway, uh, maybe we'll, maybe we'll get him on. Uh, maybe we'll get him uh, on the show sometime. So um, do you have anything else you wanted to, to discuss? I have one. Okay, I just want to mention one other, you neglected to mention one of, at least one of my other favorite articles in the Atlantic this year was um, called um, The Things I'm Afraid to Write About by Sarah Heppola. She's a hack. That's how we know each Sarah. Sarah, <laughs> your article in the, in the Atlantic Aww. is how we know each other. That is how we right? know each other. Right? Thank you, The Atlantic. We love you. You're our you love story. That, See, the Atlantic art is our meet cute. That's right. Art begets art. Real art Gets real art always. It's impossible. You cannot create something. You well, this. Oh, I have something very, very profound to say now. You can't create something that is true and not have it go on to create other true things. Now it might get, you know, perverted or molested at some point, but if you put something really great into the world, it will lead to great things. And that's what you did with your piece. Thank you. I lived in so much fear for so long about showing people what I really believed because I thought they wouldn't love me. And and I, I want to say something, which is that when you show people who you are, you lose a lot of people and you find the people that love who you are, that truly love you. 
You lose oh, people oh, oh. that didn't really know you in the first place. But I also think this it's evolutionary because, you know, maybe that maybe those were the people for you five years ago. I do, oh, you know, completely. we, we shed, we shed skins. I mean, I'm, 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 there's people shed skins and they, the, the world. Okay. I'll tell, say blah, 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 my ex, my late ex, my, who I think about every day, my daughter's dad. Uh, when we were mm-hmm. first together, I was like, you know, 24. I loved him. Oh my God, my world. You'll always be my world. Always, always. Ah! And he's like, nanny, we're like two planets. And we're spinning and then we overlap and our orbit or we overlap together for a while. And then we spin out. And I, I may have said this before on the podcast. I hated him for saying this. No, I will never. Yeah. I will only ever be with you. you. Yeah. But, but it's not true. It's not true. You go on because the earth continues to turn. Okay. And then, so you go on to the next, um, the next group of people that, that, that you love. You find your peeps. Anyway, we're finding our, our peeps here. So yes, no, I don't really, I don't have anything else I need to say. So Sarah Heppola, the stage is yours. Fuck, you just made me cry. I'm crying right now. Oh, Sarah Heppola. Well, you know, oh, 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 I'm glad you're crying because it made me realize something. So sorry. (laughs) I didn't say that. Listen, we had a reader again. We have the best, we have the best listeners. They write us beautiful emails. And someone said, I really want to have a a smoke them if you got them bingo, right? So you can have a bingo card. And what oh, are the things yeah. on the card? Okay, you know, Nancy cries, Sarah cries, the fifth column. Mention about this. <laughs> true crime. So I'm gonna put a I'm gonna put a challenge out there for you guys because I'm not gonna make the bingo card because that would be silly. Someone else there wants to make the bingo card. I will, I will, I will like lay it out super nicely and like put it on in the show notes and, and we can have it. And I would love it because I think it's hilarious. So anyway, you, uh, one bingo square crossed off today, Sarah. Help you cried. I'm crying because I, it started because I was like, oh, I didn't know that you think of Tim every day. And I was suddenly oh, like, every day. I was every suddenly day. like really touched by that. And then, every day. um, and then it pivoted because of course I've lost people that I only ever wanted to love them. I mean, there's just something so like when you feel that way, you're just like, I don't ever want to feel this way for anybody else. And the beauty of it is that you do, you You will feel it for somebody else. It's bananas. It's bananas. You will, you will. So yeah. I got to get out of this crying spiral. I have a question for you. Yes. Have you seen Maverick? Uh, Do you know what Maverick is? No. Have you heard of a movie called Top Gun? Oh, yes. Yes, I have heard of this movie they call Top Gun, which I think I saw in 1986 or whenever it came out. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. Maverick is... People love it. Oh. People... It's a sensation. It's a blockbuster smash. And I saw it with my brother last week. We had such a blast. Um, This is, I would recommend anybody that misses like the old days of popcorn cinema. This is just, you know, this is not the best movie that's going to be made this year in terms of like the meaning and the cinema or whatever. But this is fun. This is good, old-fashioned fun. This is Danger Zone, buddy. And it really is... I don't even like fight sequences, and this is like 85% flying sequences. And I mean, they're pretty good. But it was... it was. There's enough... Is it going to give me vertigo? 
I get. I don't I know. Maybe a weird, little bit. Depends on where you see the movie. But stuff, like, it's not yeah. that bad. Yeah. It's not okay. that bad. It's just it's it's mostly like really cool looking. But my mind wanders when there's like really long flight sequences sure. because yeah, I yeah, just yeah. like I need dialogue. And so anyway, um, but there's enough at stake with these characters that you care about what's going on with them. And one of the most moving things to me about this movie was the relationship between Tom Cruise and his ex who comes back into his life played by Jennifer Connelly. <gasps> she went, I think she went to my high school. Wow. Anyway. Jennifer yeah. Connelly is an uncommonly pretty woman. She let's, is. Let's agree she is. on this. She is. She is. And she's an excellent actress. But one of the things that is interesting about her as she is now in her 50s yep. is that whatever she's done, she has not pumped her face full of a bunch of stuff that has kept her unnaturally young looking. Now, she is just genetically gifted. But what you see, like, I really was like watching this movie, I was like, crow's feet. I have never seen so many crow's feet oh, because between him- her and and Cruz, both of them have very crinkly eyed smiles. And yours truly has a very crinkly eyed smile. I had crow's feet like in my 20s because I just like that's just how I smile. And one of the reasons that we get scared of aging is that we don't necessarily see it glamorized or valorized on movie screens. And the more you see it, the more you sort of normalize it. And you're like, oh, this is really beautiful. These two middle-aged people that are, look, they're both very beautiful and they're both aging very well. But um, they have time in their face. You know, time has etched its way into their faces and they're more beautiful for that. And I loved that. I, well, I think it's not even like, oh, wow, look how great. It's just like it becomes normal. Like it's just a normal thing, That's which the is thing. When you don't. It's you just don't. normal. Yeah. But if you Photoshop yeah. it out or yeah. you, you know, inject right. it at the first sight, oh. it, it's, it's not normal. We're not used to seeing it. And it's just a normal thing in a human body. So I loved that. I thought Maverick was a really fun movie. And I think if you're looking for something sort of like fun and mindless to do, it's a great way to spend two hours. I was out the other night. We went to a Yankees game, which actually got rained out. So we wandered to the um, nearest uh, sports bar. And Bill Schulz, whose show we were on uh, not too long ago, uh, had seen it. And then another friend of ours, we were with this gal named Jay, had seen it in like one of these theaters where the chairs move. So you're like, actually, you feel like you're in the cockpit with these people. I actually couldn't do that because I would barf. So I wouldn't do that. But I will will go see it. I want to talk about Crow's Feet for a minute. So, um, you know, we don't, I, I don't know about you, Sarah Hefla, but I don't smile at myself in the mirror. Like you're getting ready, you're right. brushing your teeth, you're putting on makeup. You're just like looking at your face and some days you look good and some days you don't. And, you know, you try to look your best, but then you're smiling for a picture that picture, someone takes of you. And, and I I'm always, like, I see it oh in the my pictures. God, I'm a yeah. thousand years old. Like you don't, but you don't, I don't, you know. I never look at my face in the mirror and go like, I mean, sometimes I look a little haggard or a little tired or something, yeah. but I don't look at my face and go, oh my God, you look really old. 
But when I see pictures of myself, I'm like, holy mackerel, is that what I look like? But what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Pictures in the sun for me, like if I'm in the sunlight, (laughs) it is like running a black light over a hotel room. It is just like, oh my God, there's so much going on here that you did not see to the naked eye. I, but see, I thought it was the opposite. Like, I thought when bright sunlight is actually good, it's like, you know that Seinfeld episode where he's going out with this girl and she looks like really great in this one light, but when you turn the other way, ta-da, she like looks sort of ghoulish. That's what I think I look like. Like, sometimes I look, wow, I look super great. And then there's this other light. I'm like, oh my God, it's I think hideous. everyone has that. And there is such a thing as like golden hour when you get the sunlight yeah, sort of yeah, softly yeah. on your For face sure. and everybody or, looks about 10 years younger and it's just or like- bar light. Yes. I mean, there are certain lights that you can have that, I mean, but I'm talking about like outside light, you know, like there's a soft light that's gorgeous and photographers love it. But, um, but there is a very harsh direct sunlight for some reason, especially in California, California just, I mean, cause it's also dry. I don't know. Like I, I never look older than when I'm in California. Um, You also, if you're, if you are of Greek, so here's my, my one joke that I've told, um, why do, why do, why do Greek men grow mustaches? Because they can. To look like their mothers, so what? if you if you are if you are of have some Greek extraction as I do, you keep a tweezer in the car because it's always going to be in the car that you notice. I didn't know I had a mustache. <laughs> you, you know what? I have, so I've never had mustache because I, I, I don't really but a little blonde hair. But what I do have is this one hair that comes out of my chin, and because it's blonde, I cannot see it. And so I have to like if you ever see me doing this, it's because I'm trying to. See see if it's there. And really, so far, it's only my mother that has the balls to say to me, <laughs> to tell honey, you, honey, you need to pluck right. your hair. And I will tell guys that I'm dating, like, hey, if you see a hair coming out of my chin, will you tell me? And they're like, yeah, yeah. Can we not talk about this? super hot. Well, at least it's not like we don't have hair like growing on our ears or something like that. Or my father, his eyebrows were like, you know, seven inches long. Um, okay. Well, on that no, we are bumping up against our uh, our kind of self-imposed one hour, 30 minute uh, line. I've got, man, I'm just going to be running around the next couple of days. Um, you're going to be writing like a demon. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Writing like a demon. Do Are we going to do um, uh, like an answer to reader mail thing? Have We need to get yes. some reader mail. Can we ask our wonderful listeners to ask us questions and you know, tell us a little bit about why they enjoy listening to us. Um, we get some of those. Re- God, we've gotten some beautiful ones. And then you've got from uh, one of the um, the um, best journalists in America, Pam Koloff, who I've no, communicated Don't say that with. out loud. Should we say that out loud? I guess we can. Well, I guess we can. I just wanted to say the peanut butter and chocolate. She was so cute. Pam's so cute. I hope she doesn't feel like we're busting her right now. But she oh, but said, so sweet. she said, you guys are like peanut butter and chocolate. And so. Nancy said, I call peanut butter. 
I call peanut butter. Um, no, I just, I want to just pay her. I, I, I can't think more highly of her or maybe I can't. She's just, she's oh, just you, astoundingly, you astoundingly because good. Because you know her, you well, will realize will. she is one of the coolest people she's in the world and she is the real deal when it comes no. to journalism. We're going to put a link to some of her stuff here. Um, uh, well, I will know her, obviously. Um, so yes, send some, send some letters. We've already got some great ones, but um, we will maybe in like the next couple of weeks, we will uh, have an episode where we read your mail. And um, thanks for joining us again. And Sarah, um, nice to see you. Nancy, I love your crow's feet. Oh, thanks. I love your hair. Hmm. <laughs> your chin hair. Okay. Bye. Bye. Oh.